Welcome to the Monash University uh, Peripative Medicine podcast series. Uh, in the spirit of reconciliation, Ada and I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend the respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. My name is Dr Adam Sutton. I am a lecturer at Monash University and consultant anaesthetist at Alfred Health. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to Aidan Barron about improving the healthcare for people from the LGBTQIA community. Aidan is a paramedic educator, researcher and medical student based in Sydney, Australia. Aidan is currently an honorary researcher in emergency cardiovascular and critical care at the Kingston University and St George's University London, an adjunct lecturer in paramedicine at Charles Sturt University Australia, the course director of the POCUS course uh, UK and EU, the inaugural recipient of the Phillips Young Clinical Innovator Award and sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Paramedic Practice. Welcome to the podcast Aidan. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Uh, can you please start by talking about the physical and mental health of people from the LGBTQIA community and why these people are a high-risk community? Yeah, um, look, again, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad that we're able to talk about this because uh, people who have diverse genders and sexualities, so people who um, identify as LGBTQIA, um, unfortunately, they, they have a higher um, morbidity and mortality rate across a number of domains. So essentially, if you can think about it like this, if you've ever been in a, in a situation where you're going around a circle and you've been asked to say your name and something uh, interesting about you or, or a hobby, I know about you, but, but I start rehearsing in my head. Oh my God, what am I going to say? I, I have to pick a hobby. Uh, do I like movies? No, that's too generic. And then it gets to you. And there's kind of that, like you take that breath in just as you're about to kind of talk about you and you kind of feel a bit awkward and nervous. Um, and that's the feeling that people with diverse genders and sexualities can experience almost throughout the day, every day, sometimes because there's a kind of anxiety that comes from recognizing that one is different from the norm as projected within society. And that causes a, a form of minority stress. And, and unfortunately, we know that that stress um, permeates throughout multiple different health domains and manifests itself in, in a whole bunch of areas uh, in terms of our life and our, and our health and our well-being. And, and that's just the beginning, you know, and it, so from a, from a mental health perspective, there's, there's increased stress and that manifests itself in, in cardiovascular risk. But if we then go on, there's also uh, the, the intolerance from family, friends, members of society, which can lead to verbal and physical abuse. And that's unfortunately incredibly high, um, incredibly high rates uh, in people with diverse genders and sexualities who experience verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, abuse with weapons. So, you know, we're looking at, at quite, a, quite a high rate of, of risk to, to people. And, mm. and that really impacts their health. 
it impacts not only their physical and mental health, but also their ability to access appropriate healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's a real issue. You know, roughly one in ten children in Australia are too afraid to go to the bathroom during school, and so will just hold on the entire day and not go to the bathroom simply because they don't feel comfortable to do so. And you can just imagine the kind of impact that would have on someone's learning and, and therefore their, the rest of their life if, if they're unable to participate fully in their, in their formative years of education. And I won't belabor the statistics too much, but um, if you look at people who are transgender and particularly um, transgender people who are also people of color, the suicide rates are so high that we're not even sure just how hard they go, but potentially upwards of 78 to 80% um, will engage in a suicide attempt, which is just horrific. And so- That's staggering. Yeah, I think it's, it behooves us to recognize that this is a, it's a, it's a high risk population where we can have a, a massively positive effect with just a few simple things. Yeah, I completely agree. The health outcomes for this population are terrible um, and it's a huge community-wide challenge to make a difference. Uh, It would be great if today we can focus on a few small things that individual practitioners can do in their own practice to make a difference for these people. Uh, And uh, I think we can start probably by understanding the identity spectrum Could you describe what the identity spectrum means? Yeah, thank you so much, Adam. So the, and and apologies for all the listeners, I'm recovering from a non-COVID upper respiratory tract infection at the (laughs) moment. So my voice is a a bit husky and I've been a bit bit of a pariah in in my social life with my my mild cough. Um, The identity spectrum is is essentially understanding that when we break down identity, there's, there's a few different domains And we can see things in terms of a spectrum rather than a binary. So when we talk about identity, if we start by breaking it down into um, gender identity and gender expression, that's a nice way to to start it off with. So you've got your gender identity, which is essentially your psychology. And it's, it's who you see yourself as. It's who you are. The first thing when you wake up in the morning your, your, who you feel yourself to be. And, and that ranges on a, on a scale of um, male to, to female with, with a non-binary identity in the middle. So kind of going from man to woman. Uh, and it, that's our psychology. And that's very different to our physical sex characteristics uh, or our biological sex, um, which also ranges from masculine to feminine. Um, but very much there's, uh, you know, a, a large variety of intersex physical sex characteristics, which exist between that. So I like to, to think of it this way. There's as many people who are intersex on this earth as there are people who are redheads, um, which, which when you put it into perspective is quite interesting because it really makes us reframe um, how we view physical sex characteristics. It's very much more of a spectrum than we were often initially led to believe. And and there's everything from 
um, you know, being born with, uh, you know, non, non-fully developed genitalia or SRY expression deficiencies or Klinefelters. There's a whole range mm. of, of physical sex characteristics which, which vary amongst the population. And so that's our physical sex characteristics from man to intersex to woman. And then we have our gender expression. And, and our gender expression is how we present ourselves to the world. So that's the way we dress, the way we behave. And that's very much society and socialized based. You know, it's very cultural. It's, it's the activities we engage in. And it very much, you know, boils down to the society's view of traditional gender norms and roles. Um, and, and so we've got those characteristics. And then after we look at physical sex characteristics, gender identity and gender expression, then eventually we can talk about sexual orientation, which is who we're attracted to. Um, And the beautiful thing is these don't necessarily have to align. So we've previously spoke about a a few, uh, talked about a few case studies and, um, you know, a a wonderful example is that uh, young children, uh, particularly kind of between the ages of three and roughly 11, before they enter puberty, um, often will have what we call gender divergence, which is that you might have mm-hmm. a young boy, we'll call him Tom, um, and, and he'll have male physical sex characteristics, um, and he will have a male gender identity. So you know he'll he'll identify as a boy. He'll see himself as a boy, but mm-hmm. he might love playing with fairies and Barbie dolls and wearing pink dresses, which is a traditionally feminine um, gender expression. The thing is, though, that it's perfectly normal for young children to explore uh, a variety of, um, uh, you know, of, of gender roles and expressions because it's just a natural part of growing up within a, within a society. And the vast majority of these children uh, end up, perhaps unfortunately, um, you know, decreasing that, that variance and um, very much expressing themselves in a more congruent way with their identity and physical sex characteristics after they enter puberty. Um, but of course, then we come to uh, the minority of, um, of patients where um, they have a gender identity, which is divergent to their physical sex characteristics. And, and that's what we traditionally look at as a uh, transgender identity or, or a gender non-binary identity. And once a, once a child hits Tanner stage two of puberty, that's essentially locked in place, uh, which is to say that you can't change that. And, and certainly there's never been any successful way of changing that. And, and there's no need to change it um, because it's simple, simply a, a natural part of, of the human experience, which is some people's gender identity, their, their innermost psychology uh, doesn't match in a typical fashion to their physical sex characteristics. Um, and that is what we would see as uh, someone who is uh, transgender or gender non-binary. Okay. Uh, so now that you've uh, brought up those those terms of transgender and gender non-binary, uh, we are all familiar with the LGBTQIA uh, nomenclature, um, but uh, it's a pretty uh, broad spectrum um, and maybe if you could just uh, outline uh, what that spectrum involves um, and how that relates um, to the identity spectrum that we've just discussed. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and I'll also just flag uh, Sam Killerman online has created a wonderful uh, infographic called The Genderbred Person, which is a, is a fantastic graphical um, representation of understanding those spectrums. Uh, so I do recommend people have a look at that. Um, I know it does feel like we keep adding letters, <laughs> and I apologize. Uh, we're, we're probably going to stick with LGBTQIA+. Um, probably no more letters for now. Uh, if we do add more letters, then uh, I apologize and you're welcome. Um, LGBTQIA, and then we added a plus on the end for everyone else, is our lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, trans, intersex, asexual, and, and plus. So lesbian and, and gay is, I think, terms people are fairly uh, au fait with, and, and that's essentially uh, when one's same-sex attracted. Um, then we have bisexual. And uh, bisexual, traditionally, uh, it, it was started to say that one was attracted to both uh, men and women. But uh, now that we recognize that there's uh, gender is a spectrum, it's to say that one is attracted both to one sex and um, other sexes and genders. And that's the bi. It's uh, the same as one and, and others. Um, and uh, then we have uh, trans and transgender. And that essentially trans comes from moving from one to another. So it's, it's a transition from uh, one gender to another. Um, and we typically look at that as uh, transitioning from the outwards and um, physical portrayal and existence of one gender to another because we recognize that a person's psychology, their brain is, uh, is hardwired um, in, in, in one way or another. And, and now we are altering the experience of their life in a physical way to reflect um, what's, what's already a truth on the inside. Uh, then we have intersex. And again, that is when one doesn't have entirely male or female physical sex characteristics. Um, it, and it's very common. And uh, then there's asexuality, which is um, a variety of things. It can be uh, aromanticism as well. But asexuality is, is quite simply um, a lack of uh, sexual desire insofar as one doesn't wish to engage in sexuality as society would, would typically um, conceive of it. But it, it doesn't for a moment mean that um, one doesn't appreciate uh, human connection. Uh, it, it, it's simply down to, to the physical um, experience of sexuality. And then we added on a plus on the end for um, every other wonderful intersection. And, uh, and I think that's quite nice and, and probably covers us off and protects us well for the future. Um, to, to include everyone else, because we recognize that um, there are so many diversities and particularly the LGBTQIA um, acronym is very much reflective of the ways we've conceived of these diversities within Western cultures. And, and there's a wonderful rich traditions and histories of gender and sex diversity amongst um, non-Western cultures and societies going back thousands and thousands of years. I mean, just in Australia, if you look at, um, you know, traditionally we've, we've had brother boys and sister girls in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for, for thousands of years, uh, which are essentially a, a phrase which describes a brother boy or sister girl. It, it's a term which describes people who have a, a diverse gender and, and, and sex or sexuality rather. Um, and it's not as specific or restrictive as uh, perhaps simply gay or 
or lesbian um, or trans. And then the Q is for queer. And uh, queer is, it used to be a, a, a quite a quite an offensive term, but uh, it's been reclaimed by the community of diverse people and with uh, genders and sexualities to essentially be a nice umbrella term for for everyone on a on a um, non heterosexual or non cisgender um, uh, background or, or identity. That's great. Thanks, Aiden. Uh, so uh, once we uh, uh, meet a new person in the clinical environment. Uh, how do we work out that somebody is uh, of a diverse uh, gender? And um, if, when we do do that, how do we know uh, what to call them and what, what pronouns should we use? What do we know when the pronouns are known? Amazing question. And uh, it's, it's a common anxiety amongst healthcare professionals in that we, we sort of would like a set of indicators, the way that we can walk into a clinical scenario and we can see certain, uh, you know, physical signs and go, oh, uh, you know, I can see a raised JVP from across the room. Oh, I can see some, you know, a, a male flush. Oh, this patient's got, you know, a tremor. Mm -hmm. We like to be able to pick things and box them straight away. And unfortunately, oftentimes, um, you can't simply do that because the, uh, the wonderful thing is, um, a lot of these diversities are not externally visible. Sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're not. Um, and so it, it's the onus is on us to create an environment where people feel comfortable to disclose those things to us if and when they want to and if and when they're appropriate. And so the best way really to do that is to give people the opportunity to be who they are and, and to inform you of, of who they are. And there's a wonderful study by um, Lisa Kodakek and, and the group and her research group, the Equality Study in, uh, in the US, which basically showed that um, amongst patients attending emergency departments, up to, I think, 98% of patients wanted to tell their healthcare professionals that they had a diverse gender or sexuality. And they really wanted healthcare professionals to ask about that because it's, it's a core component of our experience as a human. It, it, it impacts a lot of what we do and, and the way we live our lives, you know, the same way that you and I would tell our colleagues in the workplace about our families, about our hobbies, about our holidays. Oh, you know, I just bought a new car. Oh, I'm, I'm going up to, to Byron, it builds trust amongst humans when we disclose parts of our lives. It's not to say that we are wholly defined by those things, but when we're able to share parts of ourselves, it builds trust between us. And so people who with diverse genders and sexualities want healthcare professionals to ask about these things the same way that we'd ask about where you work, where you live, your, uh, you know, your, your social factors and, and take a social history simply because it's, it's a part of who we are, you know, it's a part of, of, our, of our everyday experience of, of living. And so a really nice way that I think we can approach that is to start by not making assumptions and to start the clinical encounter by simply introducing ourselves and asking our patient what their name is. Hi, I'm Aiden, what's your name? And that's fairly benign and common. And then to take it perhaps one step further 
and ask, how would you like us to record your personal details on our records today? And it's a bit of a funny question at first. How would you like us to record your personal details on our records today? Um, if the person is entirely heterosexual and cisgender, which is to say that they're not transgender, um, and they, they might not understand what you're asking. They'll go, oh, well, I mean, I, I live here. You know, my, I, I gave my details to the, to the reception or admin staff. And that's perfectly fine. You simply go, okay, well, do you have a preferred nickname or, or, or a name you'd like me to use? Because, you know, you've got people with names like Bathilda and um, Harriet who, who've been called Harry and Betty since, since the 1960s. And, and God help you mm. if you call them by their, by their full name. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll let you know very quickly that a young man, that is, that is not how I like to be referred. Um, and in exactly the same way, you know, you, you essentially create a, an opportunity for someone to let you know who they are. Because if someone does have a diverse gender or sexuality, you've now created a very non-judgmental, unassuming, tasteful and tactful opportunity for them to inform you of that. How would you like us to record your details on our records today? Is a, is a wonderful way of allowing someone who might be transgender or gender non-binary to say, oh, oh, um, well, my legal name is, um, you know, Timothy, but, but actually I prefer to go by Jill. Mm. Uh, 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 fantastic. Well, Jill, it's lovely to meet you. What pronouns do you prefer? You know, oh, oh, I, I prefer, you know, to be, you know, referred to in she and her pronouns or they and their and them pronouns. Oh, fantastic. And then it's simply a matter of us documenting that on, on their clinical record, highlighting it, bolding it, putting it up the top and, and making sure that everyone that patient interacts with in our team is also aware of that. Um, and so I think that's, it's a nice way of, um, of, of structuring the, the beginning of that, that patient interview. And speaking of the hospital record, uh, what specific things do you think we should be changing on our records to make them more inclusive? You know, it's, it's a critical question and I'm, I'm so glad you asked it because as you and I know, when someone with a diverse gender or sexuality, um, particularly someone with a diverse gender, um, <clears throat> enters a, a clinical space, uh, we're not the first person that they're going to interact with. It's going to be a receptionist or an admin mm. staff or a clerical officer or a, or a booking officer. And the first few questions is name, date of birth, uh, tick the box, male or female or other. And even if there's an other box, I don't know about you, but I've never felt particularly comfortable going through any checklist and, and ticking other for myself. It always feels a bit alienating. It's like, oh, I'm not the norm. You know, I'm, I'm a, Definitely. you know, am I a nuisance? Are they actually going to understand what I'm saying by other? I mean, when I'm checking out dietary requirements and I have to check other because I'm, you know, gluten intolerant now. It's, it's, a, it's a funny, weird experience. And, that, and that's just what I eat, let alone who I am. So if we're able to reframe how we're doing that, and, and perhaps, you know, there's a few ways of doing it. It depends your, what your clinical service is and, and how broad it is. You know, 
on a on a purely kind of biomedical basis, we, we'd really like to know what someone's physical sex is and that their biology. Mm-hmm. So knowing if someone is man, woman, or intersex um, is, is fairly helpful. But in terms of their identity, that that doesn't perhaps cover identity in terms of male, female, trans, or non-binary. And, and so once you recognize that gender identity and biological sex are two different things, um, you then come into this conundrum of, well, do I ask both? And certainly sexual health services in Australia will ask both because uh, it's, it's crucial for them to know. Um, if you're in a clinical setting where you're taking a, a, a good history, then frankly, you, you really just need to know one because whatever the other is will come out in the history. Um, in an ideal situation, I would just put gender and leave the space blank for the patient to fill in. Um, that sounds perfect. You know, because th- the vast majority of people will just fill in their gender um, as, mm. as they see it, um, and it'll fit neatly within your records already. And then for the minority of people who have a diverse gender, it is incredibly helpful if they then tell you what their gender is right there. Um, and so you might have someone who says trans man or trans woman. And mm. that simply means trans man, which means that they were assigned female at birth and now they are a man. Or trans woman, they were assigned male at birth and now they are a woman. Um, and that's incredibly helpful to know. Are there other things in the physical environment that we can do to signal uh, our inclusiveness or uh, do you think those things are useful or should we be doing that? You know, if you want to put a rainbow poster in your waiting room, I fully support it. And I think it's a (laughs) wonderful thing to do to, to put up physical signs which which signal to people that this clinical environment is a safe space and a space of trust. But we have to be aware that that can be a little bit performative. And if I'm going to be honest with you, if I had to choose between spending a set budget on giving everyone, uh, you know, rainbow posters to put in their waiting rooms or spending that budget on time, getting everyone up to speed and trained in how to do a clinical history without making assumptions or, or take a history without assumptions or, or be a bit more comfortable using uh, you know, gender neutral language or being a bit more comfortable or, or perhaps even just rewording the medical uh, record and, and, and patient care record. I would spend it on that because the experience of people Mm. is what matters. Certainly put up signs to show that you are, you know, that this is a safe clinical environment. Certainly if you would like to put a rainbow badge on your lanyard, a small little thing, you know, even Mm. perhaps not a rainbow badge, but the pride flag, which is just the pink and blue colors, um, which has been less politicized perhaps. And and you might have that on your scrubs or, or, or lanyard. An incredible thing. And it, it, it's such a powerful little thing that someone who does have a diverse gender or sexuality will pick up on that. We will see it. 
and we will know, wow, this person is an ally. They're on my side. I can trust them. Mm. It brings another depth of trust to that patient-doctor um, relationship. But you don't have to do that to demonstrate to patients that you're a safe person and that you're not going to make assumptions and that they can trust you. That, that comes out in the experience that they have with you and more so the experience they have with everyone on your team your non-clinical staff, your admin staff, your cafeteria staff, your cleaning and environmental health services staff. Um, it, it's, it's, it's about the culture of where you work. That's the key experiential factor. That's great, Aidan. I think your words about education for everyone is probably the key, the key there. Um, and just a last section that I wanted to talk to you about uh, is... Uh, gender-affirming medical care in Australia. Uh, what's meant by gender-affirming medical care and what's available for our patients to access? Thank you so much, Adam. So gender-affirming medical care is essentially the, the medical care that we can provide to assist someone to live a life where their body is more reflective of their psychology and so it's essentially allowing someone to shape their body in a way that reflects their gender identity more fully. And there's a range of therapies which, which medicine's able to provide. And what's interesting is it's, it's perhaps one of the most effective psychological interventions currently available to medicine in that we take people who are, who are transgender and gender non-binary who have some of the highest rates of psychiatric illness in terms of depression, anxiety, suicidality because of the consistent minority stress and anxiety and assault and abuse that one experiences in society when, when one's gender identity and physical sex are incongruent. Um, in, in, in our society's view. So, you, you know, it's, it's not that there's necessarily something intrinsically unhealthy. It's that it is so stressful to exist in our society when one is trans or non-binary. And if we're able to offer them gender-affirming medical care to allow them to transition uh, to varying degrees, we can bring that level of psychiatric uh, morbidity down to the population baseline. You know, you're taking people with incredibly high rates of suicidal ideation down to a rate of suicidal ideation that matches the population baseline. It's incredible. And I really, I can't think of many other things in medicine which are that effective. And the, uh, the Dutch came up with uh, the first medical transition protocol for young people. And, and the key there is trying to get in there early before someone has to go through and complete puberty because we, we have the tools to recognize um, uh, diverse gender identities early on because they tend to cause gender dysphoria and that's you know, very much clinically appreciable. So the, the Dutch created the 12, 16, 18 protocol. And essentially that starts off at around 12 years old when a child is experiencing gender dysphoria and they're diagnosed by a mental health professional, whether that's a, a psychologist or a, or a psychiatrist um, or a, a, a well-educated um, medical practitioner as, as having gender dysphoria. And we're able to start them on puberty blockers. Um, and essentially, it's an entirely reversible process 
which simply delays the onset of puberty. And that allows them to not go through a very stressful and irreversible uh, puberty of an undesired um, sex. And then around 16 years old, when they have mentally matured in order to appreciate the risks and benefits from a medical perspective of less reversible steps, we're then able to offer them uh, cross-sex hormones. So androgens or estrogens um, or testosterones, uh, which allow them to go through a puberty of the desired sex. And then after one reaches 18 and a legal age of maturity, uh, that individual is able to elect, in some cases, uh, if they would like to, to undergo gender-affirming surgery. And we tend to think of that as top surgery and bottom surgery, top surgery being the chest and bottom surgery being the genitalia. Um, in, we're blessed in Australia that a lot of this care can be provided um, in specialty clinics. However, we're also cursed in that it is very much difficult to access this care appropriately unless one lives in one of the major cities in this country because it tends to involve the care of a multidisciplinary team, a general practitioner, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, an endocrinologist, um, a, a pediatrician, um, and, and those team, the composition of those teams vary, but it, it is difficult to access specialty gender clinics. Um, the, the wait lists are very long because they are highly sought after. And in, in, in some states, there aren't these clinics. If one is rural, it's incredibly difficult to access. And particularly when it comes to top and bottom surgery, um, oftentimes the waiting lists are long. The insurance coverage is not adequate. And uh, certainly in the public system, it's very difficult to, uh, to access top and bottom surgery, which you know, includes mastectomy or breast augmentation or um, genital reconstruction. Um, and these are incredibly creative. I mean, the, the surgical procedures themselves, particularly um, bottom surgery, is some of the most phenomenally interesting, intricate and, and talented surgery I've ever seen um, to the point where it's fooled um, obstetrician gynecologists into thinking that this was a, a native um, vagina. You know, it, it's, it's in, incredibly affirming uh, surgery, uh, which, which has an, a fairly low rate of complications, um, but it's difficult to access and it's expensive um, oftentimes. Mm. And so there's definitely a case for looking at advocating for increased access to gender affirming medical care. But allowing patients to access at a young age means that they're able to go through the, the puberty of the desired sex and, and gender and really live a, an incredibly fulfilling life where one can often never tell that that person was assigned a, a different gender or sex at birth. Um, it, it is more obvious on a, on a visual level when one goes through a, a transition later on in life because we are often left with physical sex characteristics a, a pronounced uh, you know thyroid cartilage um mm. certain you know skeletal structures uh, but again those things change uh one thing i do want to highlight for our colleagues in critical care and anesthetics is that um the impact of cross-sex hormones uh, can increase the risk of venous thromboembolism and so particularly uh, estrogens to increase the risk of venous thromboembolism. 
and uh, testosterones and androgens uh, do increase the risk of um, stroke and MI. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that is something to just be a, a bit aware of, uh, as mm -hmm. well as the fact that after one has been on cross-sex hormones for a bit, you do get cardiac remodeling uh, after a few years. And so a question I often get asked by paramedic colleagues in particular is, uh, which ECG criteria should I use for patients with chest pain? And uh, so I generally recommend using the female criteria because it's more sensitive and one needs to reach a lower threshold um, to, to reach STEMI criteria um, in, in, in patients. Thanks, Aiden. Uh, the, the information uh, sort of reflects a really rewarding um, uh, medical career uh, for people um, mm. engaging in, in gender-affirming medical care. Mm. Uh, it sounds like an excellent uh, field for expansion. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I, um, this is the second time I've spoken to you or heard from you, and uh, both times I've, I've learnt a lot, and I think the listeners of the podcast will have taken a lot from um, hearing your thoughts in this area um, and your education. Uh, I think we've still got a long way to go, but uh, this um, will, will aid in people who, who don't know much in this area uh, making some changes in their own practice to improve the medical care of people from the LGBTIQA community. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And to everyone listening, thank you so much. Hope you have a fantastic day.